and not those kind of drinks <laughs> for my Diet Coke. She came and she was scrolling, doing what she always does, scrolling through her phone while I'm watching TV. And she came across this post and she said, that's nuts. That's just nuts. And, and she put it over and allowed me to watch this post. And I agreed with her. That's just nuts. It was a testament to how far the culture has a strayed away from truth. People want us to think that truth is relative. And what's, they'll say, what's true for you might not be true for me. But if you try to tell them what you believe is true, they quickly let you know that they don't believe what you believe is true can be true, and that you're nuts. And they become very... They remind me of the book of Judges. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One of the greatest tragedies is that kind of thinking over the centuries has infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ at different times in different ways. People looking for something deeper, something new, something titillating. They leave the truth and they add something that they have concocted in their own mind out of their own human pride and arrogance, believing that they are elevated in what they know. I'll come back to that in a few moments, because this morning we begin a journey through another one of the letters in the New Testament. The New Testament is made up of 27 different books. We begin with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of the good news the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, many incidences of his life, and then his death and his resurrection. The four Gospels describe for us the fulfillment of so many of the prophecies that were in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah that we just sang about. The four Gospels is followed by uh, Luke's continuation of his Gospel that he calls Acts the Acts of the Apostles. And he gives to us some, some historical facts of, of things that took place in that first century between the time that Christ ascended back into heaven and about 60, 62, 63 A.D. Um, following the, briefly the life of Peter, some of the things that Peter did, and, and then a great deal that has to do with Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas and, and what took place in those ministries. And following the book of Acts is a whole series of epistles, which just means letters. And we just finished one of those letters after a year's worth of Sundays. Uh, in the book of Romans, Paul's letter, Paul wrote, he's attributed 13 of those letters were authored by him. And then after he, he writes, there's, there's the... Um, book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that. And then James and Peter. James wrote one, and, and Peter wrote two letters that we have. As you read that letter, it appears that Peter must have wrote at least three, but we have two that have been in canonized into Scripture for us. And then there's three. First, second, third, John. 
And then there's one really short letter by a guy named Jude, who was the half-brother of Jesus, that was James, who wrote the epistle before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then the book of Revelation was also written by John the Beloved. And uh, so John gets credit for five of those books in the New Testament. The John we're talking about here, now if you read your New Testament, there's at least five different Johns named. This one is John, the son of Zebedee. I'll call him John Zebedee. He was the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. At one point in the gospel, James and John are referred to as the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Sounds like a WWE tag team. The sons of thunder. It would seem that these boys... uh, had a short fuse and little tolerance for things that they didn't agree with when they were younger. The first glimpse that we get of John Zebedee in the scripture, he's anonymous. And that is, in the first chapter of John, you read the story of two disciples of John the Baptist are there one day when John the Baptist says, here he comes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of those disciples was named Andrew. Andrew and this other disciple, they followed Jesus all day long. And then Andrew went and found Peter the next day and brought him to Jesus, his brother Simon. The disciple that's not named, most scholars believe, it's the author of the Gospel of John. It's John himself. He never really refers to himself by name in John. Um, At least at the beginning, he talks about himself as the one that Jesus loved. So that's our first glimpse of him. The, The second time that we see John is John and James, his brother, and Peter, are on the seashore cleaning their nets after fishing all night and catching no fish, and they're mending their nets, mending the holes and all of that. And Jesus comes by and says, Peter, can I borrow your boat? I want to preach from this boat. And Jesus preaches a sermon, the crowd gathers, and you remember at the end of the sermon, Jesus said to Peter, let's launch out into the deep, let's go fishing. And Peter says, we fished all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless, because you say so. And they caught that great drought of fishes, so many fish that swamped the boat, they had to call their partners. Uh, so James and John and Peter were all involved in that great miracle. And it was that day that Jesus said to them, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the scripture says that Peter, James, and John left their nets. In other words, they left their occupation. They left their career. The thing that they had been raised to do all of their life, and they followed Jesus. Peter, James, and John are known as the inner circle of the 12 disciples. They're called that because there are several occasions, like the Mount of Transfiguration uh, and into the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and when Jesus goes to pray for Jairus' daughter, these are the only three he takes into the inner sanctum. So Peter, James, and John had this, this special place. And the book that we're going into in First John, though John does not identify himself at the beginning of this letter, we are thankful to the scholars in the first century 
uh, and the early part of the second century, who, who tell us that um, all indication is that it was John the Beloved, John Zebedee, who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. 1 John was probably written between 85 and 95 A.D. Now, when you consider the fact that Jesus died and rose again, left about 30 A.D., that means 60 years have gone by. John was probably the youngest disciple, but now he's an old man, older than me, older than most people in the room today. He's an old man. All the other apostles have most likely been martyred by this time. All the other 11, except Judas, were martyred for their faith. Judas, of course, committed suicide. Some, like Peter and his wife, were crucified, and tradition tells us that Peter asked to be crucified upside down. James, John's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. Stephen was the first martyr, the deacon, but James was beheaded by Herod. And Peter was going to be next, but you remember the story how the angel came and, and set him free, and Herod was smart enough not to mess with anything supernatural, and he left that alone. But John's brother was beheaded by Herod. Thomas was run through by, with a spear down in India. He'd taken the gospel all the way to India, and he offended at some chieftain who must have been a coward because this tradition says he threw the spear at him and put him in his back as Thomas was walking away. One of the others uh, was beaten to death with a fuller's club. John died of old age, but not because they did not try to kill him. Tradition tells us that somebody put him in a vat of oil, a human french fry, but he did not die, but lived with a skin tradition the rest of his life. There's another tradition that says that they, they tried to poison him, but the poison did not kill him, left him with some digestive issues, but it did not kill him. It is my opinion, as well as that of some other scholars, that, that the book of Revelation that he wrote was before he wrote 1 John. That 1 John was perhaps the last uh, book of the New Testament in terms of when it was written. Now, I know there's some who believe Revelation, Revelation was the last one written in AD 95, and you can, it doesn't matter to me which one you believe. John wrote them both. By the time that John writes this letter, John is living in the city of Ephesus. He's living in the city of Ephesus. The believers who had been in Jerusalem, where John, it appears he spent most of the time, up until about 67 or 68 AD, Jesus had told them, 
when you see the abomination of desolation, or in Luke's gospel, he says, when you see the city encompassed about, flee. Flee. Pray you're not pregnant. Pray it's not winter. But when you see it, circum- when it's under siege, leave. And if you read history, Titus had come against the city of Jerusalem. They'd laid a siege on it for months. But there was another place in the empire where they were having a skirmish, a war, and they pulled the armor away. And history would tell you that the Christians who were inside that city, where there was famine and, and people eating people, they fled the city. John most likely ends up in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in Asia Minor on one of the major trade routes in the great Roman Empire. A city that was given over to idolatry and superstition. Ephesus was the home of the magnificent temple for Artemis, or Diana. A religion characterized by gross immorality and bizarre rites of Eastern pantheism. Remember, that's where the silversmith started a riot to get Paul excommunicated from the city because people quit buying their little silver statues of Diana because they got saved. They were given to sorcery or magic in Ephesus. That was a big deal, a really big deal. And if you read in Acts 19.19 that Paul was there and he's preaching and people are being saved, that one day they had a bonfire and these new Christians brought their sorcery scrolls and they burned them in that fire. I read something this week that I didn't pay any attention to before. It's amazing how you can read the scripture and you not see anything. Um, and it says that it was, those scrolls were worth 50,000 drachmas. 50,000 drachmas. So I looked in my notes on the side of the page, what's a drachma? It's a silver coin worth about a day's wages. 50,000 days wages. That's 136 years working 365 days. That's how much those scrolls were worth, not because the scrolls were so, but because that's the price they put on magic. It was worth that to know these spells that you could put on people. They put them in the fire because they've been born again by the preaching of the gospel. Paul planted that church in Ephesus. He was there for two years until the silversmiths got him run out of town during a riot. It would appear that Timothy had spent some time there as the pastor in Ephesus as well. And we're told that John the Beloved, John Zebedee, spent his last years at the church at Ephesus. The moment we read from John's letter, part of why he wrote it. But I need to give you just a little bit more background. Sixty years have gone by, plus or minus, since Jesus ascended back into heaven. John is a man in his late 80s or early 90s. There are very few first-generation disciples of Jesus left. 
Very few people who were there in Jerusalem and in Judea when Jesus was living and breathing. Very few. There is now a third generation of people who've come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. First generation preached to the next generation, second generation to the third generation. And among those second and third generation disciples, there arose some false prophets, false teachers. John labels them as men with the spirit of Antichrist. He calls them Antichrist. They were teachers with really messed up theology. They had created their own doctrines that were far from the truth, and what they believed was nuts. You thought I would never connect back to where I started. What they believed is absolutely absurd. But it was dividing the church. In the second chapter, 1 John, we see that some of them left the fellowship and started their own thing down the street someplace. John calls them Antichrist. In my research this week, I came across what I found to be some very interesting history that may well have been the impetus for this letter that John writes. There was a certain Jewish man who had lived in Egypt came to Judea, stirred up all kinds of trouble, and then he makes his way to Ephesus. He claimed to have a better gospel, a new improved gospel than what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had already written. And I put his name on the screen. His name is Serinthus. Next slide, please. Serinthus. He was one of the early teachers of Gnosticism. Serinthus. You can Google him and you'll find information about Serinthus. In Asia, early Christian writers identify Serinthus as an adversary of the Apostle Paul. According to Irenaeus, his teacher Polycarp, whom John mentored, a man named Polycarp, Polycarp told Irenaeus the story of John the Apostle rushed out of a bathhouse in Ephesus without bathing when he found Serinthesis was inside, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is inside. John didn't even want to be in the same building with the guy because he was such a heretic from the truth. He was nuts. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about what the Gnostics believed, but I just, I, in order for you and me to understand this, God, this letter that John writes, we need to know these things. The Gnostic theology had two main tenets. Number one, knowledge supersedes faith and behavior. It's not a matter of faith is what you know. It's having this superior knowledge of things that you know. It's not how you behave. It's what you know. Number two, matter is essentially evil because the physical world is the product of an evil power. Matter is essentially evil because the physical world is the product of an evil power. They did not believe your body could be redeemed. 
your body cannot be saved. Because they believed that your body could not be saved, they, 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 they believed that Jesus, no way, could be the Son of God. He was a son of Joseph and Mary. And what happened when the son of Joseph and Mary was baptized by John the Baptist, then the Spirit of Christ came on him, and the Spirit of Christ was on this human vessel until they took him to the cross. Their thinking was, because he's God, there's no way he could die. So the Spirit left him, they did not believe. It was all a thing about, it was a mystical thing. It was a, uh, they just didn't believe that Jesus Christ in the flesh could be the Son of God. And because of their superior knowledge, they felt like they no longer sinned. They redefined sin. They withdrew from folks and they felt like they were superior in their spiritual knowledge to the gospel that Paul preached, that John preached, that Peter preached. And though most Gnostics were born after Jesus ascended back into heaven, they were convinced they had a new and improved gospel, a cleaner gospel. Because it's all in your mind. By the way, that's what Gnostic means, knowledge. Knowledge. I have another slide. The next slide is this. It's not in your notes. Hello? Their superior knowledge led them to deny the reality of Christ's incarnation, atoning death, bodily resurrection, and with that to redefine sin and redirect Christian behavior. They did not believe in the Christmas story. They did not believe in the crucifixion. And they didn't believe in Easter. And yet they claimed to be Christians. It was nuts. In his letter, John gives four specific reasons why he writes this short letter. And it's really hard to say it's a letter because there's no way he has his salutation, he doesn't greet anybody at the end. Some people believe it's a sermon that he wrote that he wanted circulated around the churches in Asia. I don't know that for sure. We'll talk more about that as we go on. Um, next week, I'll give you the four reasons. I've spent too much time. I just want to get into these verses. So I'm going to read the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, testify to it, proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him, proclaimed to you. 
God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This morning, I want to highlight three major points in the first four verses. Three things are highlighted for us in this introduction. A relationship, a fellowship, and a joy that follows. Number one, a relationship. A relationship. John is concerned about the family of God. About the family of God. When you read Peter's writings, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Peter talks a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We are now members of this kingdom. The kingdom of God. We've been made priests in the kingdom of God. Paul talks a great deal about the church of God. We are part of the church, the church of God. He talks about it a great deal. But let us see, John is concerned with the family of God, the family of God. If you read through 1 John all the way, you'll take note of how many times he regresses them, my little children, my little children. Now, all three of these are the same thing, the kingdom of God, the church of God, and the family of God. But each one of these writers comes at the same thing from a different perspective. And this letter can be properly described as introducing us to life with the Father and the intimacy of the family circle of God. Verse 1 said this, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning. What's he talking about? That which was. A person, place, or thing. And I think when you read the whole context, it becomes very obviously there's only one conclusion it's a person. That which was from the beginning. That's one of his favorite phrases of the apostle, from the beginning. There are at least three beginnings in the Bible. Three beginnings. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the beginning of material creation. There is a moment in eternity where time began, if you understand what I'm saying, God said, let there be, and he created something out of this nothingness, created the heavens and the earth. Now how far back that goes, no one really knows. Just back to the dawn of creation. Now science wants us to believe it was millions and millions of years ago. Scripture would have us believe it's 6,000 years ago. I don't care what you say in terms of time. I want you to know that God did it. 
the order to creation negates the people who believe it all happened with a big bang, they're nuts. God created in the beginning. Now in the Gospel of John, there's another beginning. In the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on it said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in verse 1, that beginning goes back before creation. In the beginning was. The Word was already there when God said, time will begin. And the Word was there before creation. The Word of life that John talks about was there before creation. Now we human beings, we all have a starting point. Every one of you have a birth date on a birth certificate, providing they had birth certificates when you were born. And um, I think all of us have birth certificates, right? I'm not sure my dad ever had a birth certificate because he was born at home and grandma didn't worry about those kinds of things. But... He must have had one somewhere along the line to get a social security card. Um, All of that to say this. We have a starting point. We have an ending point. But what he's describing, God was. He was eternal before time began. The word was with God. The word of life was with God. The word of life was God. But now in this letter, there's a third beginning. That which was from the beginning that he talks about in 1 John 1. 1. That which was from the beginning, I believe it has a dual meaning. He refers to in the beginning several times throughout his letter. And I want to run through them real quickly. In the second chapter, the seventh verse. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Now, were these people there when God created the heavens and the earth? What's he talking about? He's talking about the beginning of the New Testament church. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What you heard when you got saved, abide in that. The message that you heard when we came to you preaching the gospel the first time, remain in that. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinnings of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This one goes back to the day of creation and the time of creation, that beginning. Verse 11, 1 John chapter 3. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Who gave that command? Jesus did. On the night before the crucifixion, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. So what he's talking about is, the beginning of the preaching of the gospel that God sent his son, 
His son lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and rose again for you and I. John warns all through the letter, we must cling only to that which is from the beginning. We must cling only to that which is from the beginning. If somebody comes to you and says, the Lord has revealed to me something new. Be very, very careful. The cults come and say, look, we have something different. We have something additional. We have something that has come along much later in history than the Bible. We have a, a, a deeper revelation, an additional revelation. Say to them, keep it to yourself. I only want that which came from the beginning. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. He ascended back into heaven, he's coming back again. This one from the beginning is a person. Is a person. He's a person. He said he's been seen, he's been heard, he's been handled. That which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked on and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now what John could have said, and he didn't say it directly, but he could have said, I have written an eyewitness account to what happened in the beginning. Why don't you go find my gospel and read it? Because I've shared with you the miracles I saw with my own eyes. I saw the miracles of fish being caught in broad daylight, and not just a few fish, but a huge draught of fish. I did not once, but Jesus did it twice. I was there when the, Jesus took the little boy's lunch, and he fed 5,000 men, plus the women and children had 12 baskets full left over. I saw him heal the blind. I saw him raise the dead back to life. I was there when Lazarus came hopping out of the grave after being dead for four days. I touched the man. I leaned upon his chest. Read it. At the Last Supper, he sat close to the Lord and literally leaned upon him as they were reclining there. John could say, I was there when they crucified him on the cross. I was there. I was there on Easter Sunday night when he appeared in the room. And we thought it was a ghost. And he asked for food and we gave it to him. And lo and behold, he was able to consume it. I was there when he ascended back into heaven. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. Don't tell me he was not God in the flesh. Because my gospel, I wrote it to show to you. Remember what he said? I have written these things that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Christian faith rests upon great historical facts. Christian faith rests upon great historical facts. The Gnostics wanted to make something mystical about it. 
But the truth of the gospel is there's historical facts that you cannot deny. The evidence that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and Jesus rose again is irrefutable. The acts of a human being in history. Our Christian faith is not based upon ideas or doctoral statements. That's why becoming a Christian is not simply a matter of joining a church or believing a certain creed or signing a doctoral statement. You can do all of those things and never be a Christian. John points out that becoming a Christian is to be related to a person. It is to be related to a person. A particular one. All of us are related to someone. We live in families. The Bible tells us God delights to set the solitary in families. Children are related to their parents and parents of their children. Why? Because they share the same life. The DNA. They share the same source of life. And that's what makes a Christian. To share the life of God by relationship to a person. The only person who has that life is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To as many as received him... He gave the power to become the sons of God, to become related. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. If you were around when my dad was preaching, you heard him quote this a million times. If you ever went to one of the funerals he preached, 99% of the funerals he preached, he used this verse. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have have life. He who is in relationship with Jesus has life. He who does not have the Son or does not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior does not have life. Paul told us before you met Christ you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's simple. No matter how religious you may be, you do not have life if you do not have Jesus. You are not a Christian. John makes this crystal clear at the beginning of his letter, calling us back to these fundamental things, which he wants people to understand. Jesus is a real person. A real person. The Christ is a real person. It wasn't a matter of the Spirit of Christ coming upon Joseph and Mary's offspring. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was God in the flesh. I looked at him. I heard him. I touched him. He's an historical being. We lived with him. We ate with him. We slept where he slept. We heard his words. We have never forgotten what he spoke to us. This is the point to which all objections to Christianity are ultimately directed. An attempt to destroy this basis of of facts. The forces which seek to overthrow Christian faith today try to undermine our confidence in the facts of the Scripture. 
They want to undermine the great historical truths about the person of God who appeared as man in the flesh in time. We must believe these facts. We cannot believe just ideas, doctoral statements. We must come down to the factual things, acts of God and history. John begins with what he experienced. I touched him. Serenthus, he talks about all this mystical. We touched him. We felt his warm human flesh. We looked into his human eyes. I literally felt the beating of his human heart. We became aware that we were listening to the heartbeat of God and in contact with the life of God. He took that life and laid it down in order that we might have life. He gave it to us through the cross, and that life that he gave to us makes us part of the family. Verse 2 said in the NIV, Life appeared, we have seen it. The life appeared, we have seen it. He means eternal life was visible in the relationship of the Father and the Son. Jesus did not just come, or come just to show us God. He did come to show us God. He said that in John 14. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Not only did he come to show us God, he came to show us man related to God. He came to show us man related to God. As you look at the life of Jesus, you will see this secret relationship, the lost secret of humanity, this new way which by man is intended to live in a continual dependence upon the life of the Father. Man is intended to live in a continual dependence upon the life of the Father. Remember what Jesus said? One of the places he said it, John 14, 10, Do not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or do you not believe? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus lived in total dependence upon the Father. And he did that to show us how God intends for you and I to live in total dependence upon the Father. There's other places where he said, that these words that I say, they're not my words. They're the words of the Father. The deeds I do, they're not my deeds. They're the deeds of the Father. He looked to God. He trusted God. Why did Jesus go to prayer so often? He was dependent upon the leading and the guiding of the Father by the Holy Spirit that descended on him at the baptism of Jordan River. He is dependent on the Father. It is the life that John has talked about, a new way of living, a new way of reacting to situations in dependence upon God. Reacting to the situations of life in dependence upon God. He said, the life appeared. 
And we're going to tell you. We're going to proclaim it to you. And then he says there's a result of this life that has appeared. Two things. First thing is fellowship. Fellowship. Here John comes to the most beautiful thing about family life. Fellowship or companionship. God's plan to do away with aloneness. It's the fellowship. Verse 3, that which we've seen, we've heard, proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship, what is it? Somebody said it's two, two fellows in the same ship. In a sense, that's true. They have something in common. But fellowship, Essentially, the word means to have all things in common. All things in common. When you have something in common with another, you have fellowship with him. If you have nothing in common, you have no fellowship. We have all things in common. We share human life in common. Most of us are citizens of the United States of America. We share that in common. But John is talking about that unique fellowship which is only the possession of those who share the life of Jesus Christ. We have this different kind of life, this new relationship. This makes them one, and, and that's the basis for appeal of the Scripture to live together in tenderness, to love, have love toward one another. Not because we are inherently wonderful people, though we are, not because we have remarkable personalities, though we do. Or that we're naturally gracious, kind, and loving. Amen. Unfortunately, sometimes we're grouchy, scratchy, and irritating. But we still love one another. Why? Because we share life together. We have something in common. We share the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're born again, Christ is in you, Christ is in me. We have that life in common. And that's the only place to find that life is in Christ. But that's not all and it cannot be all. There's not only that horizontal relationship, it depends on our vertical one as well. Verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We will discover as we go on as Christians that the horizontal relationship is directly related to the vertical one. The horizontal relationship, my relationship with people, is directly related to my relationship with God. If my relationship with God is not right, there's going to be trouble in my horizontal relationships with people. If I'm not walking in close fellowship with the Lord, 
my humanness will cause me to have problems walking in close fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. He said our fellowship is with each other because we have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship here means exactly the same thing I talked about a moment ago, having things in common. Here we come to the most remarkable thing about the Christian life. We have communion or fellowship with Christ. We have communion or fellowship with Christ. In order to understand that, there's a couple of words that I want to add to our vocabulary in terms of fellowship. It's about a partnership. It's a partnership. The sharing of mutual interest, mutual resources, mutual labor together. God and I in a partnership. God and I in a partnership. All that I have is put at his disposal. That's the next. All that I have is put at his disposal. What do I have? Me. My mind. My body. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. He gave to me the gift of me. And he gave to me the free will to use them as I wish. But to live in fellowship is to say, Lord, I surrender all that I am, all that I have. I surrender to you. I put them at your disposal. When I do, I discover something more remarkable. Everything that he is, is put at my disposal. Now I want you to chew on that all week long. Everything that he is, is put at my disposal. I am in fellowship with God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatness of God, the wisdom of God. If any man lacks wisdom, what do you do? The power of God. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. The glory of his mind. It's all made available to us. When I make myself available to him, that's the great secret of fellowship. I'm at his disposal, and everything that he is is at my disposal. That means he makes available for me that which I desperately lack. Wisdom, power, and ability. There are things that God calls us to do that we cannot do in our own power. It's when we learn that he gives us the power to do what he's called us to do, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can go through the times of plenty. I can have nothing. I can be clothed or naked. I can do it all because he empowers me. But not only is there's a partnership, the second word is there's a friendship. A friendship. Friendship and partnership together spell fellowship. 
God desires you to be his friend. What do you do with friends? One of the things you do with friends is you tell them things you won't tell anybody else. You share secrets. You tell them intimate things. Did you know that God wants to tell you secrets? About him? About life? Jesus said in John 15, 15, I've not called you servants, but I've called you friends. He said in that context, in which he's attempting to depart to them a seeker of life. Now God will do this. God wants to do this. This is that wonderful world fellowship means. And he'll give to you secrets. And the good thing about it is he'll only give them to me as we are able to bear them. As we grow. As our friendship grows. Our understanding grows. God will tell you secrets about yourself about life, about others around you, about everything, imparting to you his wisdom, his knowledge, because that's fellowship. That's what we're called to do. Fellowship is based upon relationship. And you cannot have fellowship unless you first come to relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you come to faith in Jesus, you're related to Jesus, you're related to the Father, and we're related to one another. And the third thing he says about fellowship, that our joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. I want to use a different word here, more descriptive in some ways. For joy is a compound of, of many things. Joy is an excellent word, perhaps it would be more helpful. Than what John means is to say that your excitement may be complete. Your excitement about your fellowship with us and with God. Joy is a kind of inner quiet thing that goes on in the midst of whatever's going on. When we discover that God is actually using us, it's the most exciting, joy-producing experience possible to men. I've seen young people literally jump for joy when they understood that God used me today. God was here. God was here. I've, I have been with men who literally trembled as they spoke about moments when they knew that God had used them to do something of kingdom business. Women discovered how excited they have God at work in their neighborhood, using their kitchen, their coffee pot to do kingdom business, and they're not even able to sleep at night because of the excitement. You know, one of the I look at my watch, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> One of the greatest things about fellowship and the thing to make your joy complete is to share your joy with somebody else. Now, I don't know if this illustration helps or not, but uh, a year ago or so, I don't remember when it was, but Vicki and I and Rick and Charlotte went to Maui. And... Uh, Rick and Charlotte went a day ahead of us because we thought church was important on Sunday. And they went ahead of us. And then we arrived in, in Maui and, and rented a car and uh, been on the flight for a while. And 
I don't remember what the snack was, but it wasn't very sufficient. But we started looking for a place to eat. Uh, unfortunately, we left the airport and didn't find a place to eat for about 40 minutes. And we're driving into the city where we're staying on Maui, and uh, we're having this conversation. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. And I started looking for a sign that said, I don't care. I didn't find that, but I did find a sign, and we're driving by a little strip mall that said Bob's something, and I thought it said Bob's barbecue. It wasn't barbecue at all, but it was Bob's something. But we were starving. We pulled in there and uh, went in. It was a hamburger joint, gourmet hamburgers. They were really good. Genesis says, and it was good. It was good. We enjoyed that. We shared our joy story with Rick. Now, if you know Rick, one of the most important things of life is what you eat. We shared, we found this hamburger joint in the strip mall, hole in the wall, the best burger that I've had in a long, long time. And he delighted in our joy. A couple days later, we took Rick and Charlotte to have a burger. Now, the excitement has increased because not only have we told them about our joy, but now they're experiencing our joy together. We enjoyed that joy so much that we went a third time to the same hamburger joint. We were only there a week. Our joy was complete because we shared it with somebody else. Are you catching my drift? Our joy is complete because we share it with each other. Last note, do not make the mistake of thinking that the only way to have joy is to be free of pressures or problems. No, take all the pressures and the problems but with them that wonderful feeling down inside that God is at work and he is at work in you. God is at work and he's at work in you. You are a vital part of his program. God is using you to do his eternal work. There's nothing more exciting than that. That's worth listening to, isn't it? This morning, we're going to partake of the communion emblems. I hope you grabbed one when you came in. And I know you think I forgot it, but I did not forget it. Communion. Fellowship. We share life together. The life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing... Atoning in these emblems. Nothing that will save you by partaking of these emblems. These emblems are a sign that we take together in declaration of the fact that we have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That we believe he actually was the Son of God in the flesh. And that his body was actually broken. 
Cerinthus was nuts. God became flesh. He dwelt among us. And his body was broken for us. So Lord, as we hold this emblem today of your broken body, and we think about the stripes that were laid upon your back, before the stripes, the, the beating of your face, the plucking of your beard, then the plowing of your back with the whip, the crown of thorns placed upon your brow, all because we were broken, all because we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But Lord, you took the penalty for our sin. You were beaten in our place. It should have been us, but you took it. You took it. That you might make available to us your perfect life. Life eternal. Life abundantly here and now. Well, we believe what Isaiah wrote and Peter echoed it 600 years later. By your stripes, we are healed. Lord, I thank you for your healing power today. Half of each person in the room and those who are watching online. Lord, as we just declare that Jesus is my healer, by his stripes I am healed. Thank you for that healing virtue flowing into bodies today, into broken hearts, wounded spirits. Lord, that you would bind them up with the healing balm of Gilead. Thank you, Jesus, for your brokenness. Today we are whole. Today we live in fellowship with one another because you broke down every barrier that came between us. And we are partners together because you are broken. Thank you, Jesus. Shall we eat? Lord, as we hold a cup, that you said is your blood shed for the remission of sins for many. We thank you that it is by the power of this blood that our sins were washed away and the record was made white as snow in the presence of God. It's by the power of this blood that we live each and every day in victory over sin. It's by the power of this blood that we continue to walk and even the days that we sin, as we confess those sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank you for the cleansing power, the blood of the Christ, the blood of the cross. Thank you for the promise that one day we will see you again. We will be with you forever because we have been washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. We celebrate our connection with you today because of your precious blood. In Jesus' name, shall we drink? Stand with me as we sing together one more time. The course to Jesus Messiah.